1: Well, this first came to our attention the way many research projects come through to our attention. You know, we're always sort of on the lookout for new and interesting malware or new and interesting attack methods.
0: That's Kevin Lavelli. He's Director of Threat Intelligence at Cylance. The research we're discussing today is titled Poking the Bear, Three-Year Campaign Targets Russian Critical Infrastructure.
1: And we pay particular attention to targeted attacks. Myself and uh, another security researcher named John Gross spent a lot of time tracking the so-called APT groups, advanced persistent threat groups or state or state-sponsored groups. And so we started out just by investigating some interesting files we found in a common malware repository and thought, at least initially, that we were on to another foreign espionage campaign.
0: And a lot of this centers around this organization called Rosneft. Can you give us some background here? Who are they and, and how did uh, they get to be at the center of this?
1: Well, we found out that Rosneft was involved here. Rosneft was actually just one of a number of state-owned Russian critical infrastructure companies whose names were invoked in the infrastructure, the command and control infrastructure that was used to carry out this attack right? So we we didn't see it at first, but when we started to look at the infrastructure that was used here, we saw that name. Rosneft is, well, they call themselves the largest publicly traded oil company in the world. Hmm. And they are a company whose name caught our eye because, first of all, where they're located. Second of all, the fact that they're owned, at least in part, by the Russian government. But that name also caught my attention because Rosneft was the subject of a a rather mysterious deal a couple of years ago that took a portion of the company private, mm-hmm. and it was it was noteworthy for a number of reasons. First of all, the amount of money involved. Secondly, the fact that anything having to do with this oil company was going to potentially be of geopolitical significance because, as has been reported in the New York Times and elsewhere. Russia often uses its state-owned companies, particularly this one, as a tool of foreign policy. So that held our attention. And the third reason was because there was a lot of intrigue surrounding how the, the deal to take it private was being done. Who was involved? Who were the buyers? Who was mediating the process? All of that led to reporters spilling quite a bit of ink, right, mm-hmm. uh, in, in the press, and Rosneft even got a rather conspicuous mention in the now sort of infamous Steele dossier, hmm. which was that sort of collection of raw intelligence that a former British intelligence officer put together and which was published, I think, by BuzzFeed a, a while ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ra- the Rosneft deal and its potential intersection with the Trump administration was mentioned in that report. So having seen all that, John and I thought immediately that this was going to be worth investigating further. And indeed, because of all these reasons, we thought that we were probably looking at a company that was the target of a state or state-sponsored espionage campaign.
0: Right. I mean, that makes sense. It certainly, at, uh, at first glance, all the stuff adds up to that being a, a likely thing going on here. Um, but then as you dug into it, it got a little more interesting.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, in fact, you know, th- so there were two, two interesting things here regarding this research. One is the sort of tick-tock of uncovering what exactly was going on here and why were not just Rosneft, but why were more than two dozen Russian state-owned critical infrastructure companies, and even some financial institutions, why were their names being invoked in the infrastructure of this attack? There's that, and then at the higher level, there's the this sort of onion that we just started peeling, which is a little bit about confirmation bias mm-hmm. among security researchers who often follow geopolitical developments and mentions of Of deals like this in the news, and are looking for sort of the evidence of some sub rosa cyber activity, right? That may accompany it, and so that's the road we were heading down. But what what did we learn? We learned when we started to investigate further, we learned that Rosneft A wasn't alone. As I mentioned, this threat actor had created similar websites that mimicked lots of other state owned oil, gas, chemical, agricultural organizations. And that we, we discovered that this had been going on for a long time hmm. and that this threat actor was not changing the malware that was being used in this attack, had not changed it in several years, which was also intriguing.
0: Well, let's go through some of the technical things that you found here. Can you walk us through how would someone have found themselves infected here and then take a step by step what happened after that?
1: The files that we started with were phishing documents that we pulled out of a common malware repository. That's one indicator of compromise. And through our analysis of those documents, we eventually got to the malware that was being used here, which was, you know, and there were several stages of it. But ultimately, sort of the piece of malware worth talking about here was a keylogger. So this was a piece of malware that did Lots of things and had the capacity to exfiltrate data, but its principal function and sort of the, its raison d'etre rather was keylogging and so you know we were a little bit confused at that point as to you know we understand what a keylogger does and why it might be helpful, but what we didn't understand until until we read a, a report by another security company was what the significance was of all of the mirrored Russian critical infrastructure company names among the domains that were used as infrastructure. We didn't know why those names were, were there, hmm. right? Many of those websites, if you tried to go to them, had been taken down by the time we came around to it. So we didn't quite understand what exactly we were looking at, mm-hmm. right? We knew we had a keylogger, and we knew we had a lot of this infrastructure that was designed to look very much like not just these websites of these organizations, but portions or subdomains of these companies' websites that dealt with money, right? Uh-huh. So, right. There was a Rosneft site that was invoked that if you went to it or the the site that it was mimicking, it was the place where you would go if you were trying to blow the whistle on sort of uh, corporate embezzlement. Hmm. Another series of websites brought you to the place where you would go if you were bidding for contracts for an oil or gas supplier. So these are places where money was changing hands, which ultimately, you know, sort of made sense once we read the research of this other, as it turns out, Russian security company and uh, and put the pieces together.
0: I guess I'm trying to understand uh, how they were making money here. They had stood up all of these Sites that imitated the legitimate sites, yeah. What was their game plan here?
1: Well, you know, we're, we're sort of reliant upon, as I said, I, I think sort of the excellent analysis that was published rather curiously as like paid content in Forbes of all places, but in a in a Russian version of Forbes magazine by Group IB, mm-hmm. right, which is a Russian infosec company, and their founder and CEO. Release details of an attack that well, it's it's the same attack, right, right? we We later figured out. But we hadn't seen any sort of independently published research about it. Uh, and again, we're reading it in translation. But th- what they claimed in their report was that they had at least one, probably more of these companies as clients. And they had taken screenshots of some of these mirrored websites. And so what it looks like the purpose of those ended up being was to collect credentials, right? Mm. So you had malware. What they didn't write about was the malware. That's what we were writing about. The malware was probably collecting credentials. But then if you went to these mirrored websites, these fake websites and entered your credentials, well, then there was another way in which they could harvest them. And putting all those pieces together, this looks like a business email compromise attack. I see. Right, a business email compromise attack is one where criminals collect credentials so that they can later sign in as you, right? Sign in as the victim, right? Into the into their email account, into their legitimate email account, and watch email traffic go back and forth and attempt to insert themselves into the process and misdirect funds or direct funds into their own accounts, right? Right. So if they were you know, signing in as a financial officer at Rosneft, they could wait for the email that would come across, normally come through their inbox to say, okay, pay this contractor, or here's an alert of some potential fraud happening and take advantage of the knowledge that they gain from being in that position and try to direct the funds elsewhere.
0: Right. Right. So the notion is that's that's why they're imitating specific parts of these websites that deal with things like contracting.
1: Yeah, that's our assessment. This is an intelligence analysis to a certain extent here, right? Right. So right we're, sure. We're making a judgment. I don't know exactly, but we're making a judgment here based on what Group IB wrote and based on the function of the malware that we uncovered. So putting those pieces together, yes, that's exactly what it looks like. This looks like a criminal attempt to steal money by inserting yourself into the legitimate business process of these companies and misdirect funds.
0: Now, as part of your analysis, do you suspect that they were trying to look like uh, an espionage group to throw people off the trail? Or was that deliberate? Or was that uh, simply the path that you all
1: started on down? Do you follow where I'm going with that? Yeah, it, that's, you know, the intent and the mindset of the attacker is is one of the hardest things to try to figure out when you're coming after the fact. I think that it was an advantage, whether or not it was the intention of this guy to begin with. Right, right. Right. So I think that in general, this was interesting to us because it sort of fits a larger trend that we've been watching where, okay, so there's been discussion for some time now about the overlap between criminal syndicates and nation state hacking groups, right. right? Particularly in Russia and Eastern Europe. And what we're starting to see increasingly is a blending of the attack styles. Okay. So not hmm. to forget the personnel. I'm talking about the approach. Mm-hmm. So a, a typical criminal approach might have you taking a scattershot approach and throwing malware, not just at your target, but at at lots of other companies that are tangential to your target that might be interacting with your target with the hope of getting in somewhere, right? right. Finding some chink in the armor. Whereas a lot of sort of traditional APT attacks or state sponsored attacks have, you know, are known to have the flavor of just surgically targeting not just a particular organization, but even servers within that organization, right? And so what we're seeing is are criminal groups that are taking that targeted approach. <laughs> and nation state groups that, that are known, you know, historically for using target attacks that are taking that criminal approach, mm-hmm. right, of using that sort of broader scattershot attack method. Here, you know, this seemed relatively targeted, right? I mean, he was this threat actor, we do believe it's, it's either probably an individual or small group of people. Hmm. And we can talk about that in a minute. Yeah, we think that they pick there's certainly a flavor of their targets, right? They all have a common theme. But it just happened to be a knock-on effect, I think, that because they're targeting critical infrastructure companies at a time when some of them are in the news and the subject of a lot of geopolitical intrigue, that it might also lead investigators and security researchers like us to start to think that maybe this is an espionage campaign and not an attempt to steal money. They kind of hide in the noise, as it mm-hmm. were. You know? So it's
0: a, it's a good lesson to researchers and investigators that this fuzzing between these flavors of groups can uh, make it harder to know for sure where something's coming from.
1: That's right. I mean, I think that in general, when you're doing analysis of a malware campaign or an attack, you know, you should constantly be aware and sensitive to, number one, What are your technical collection limitations, right? If you're going to make judgments about an attack, you have to be cognizant of what kind of forensic evidence do you have access to and what kind of forensic evidence do you not have access to. How big is your window is another way of saying that. Mm -hmm. The other piece of that is that once you collect all of this technical data and are going to write it up, either for a client or for an executive, or for a public audience like we're doing here, you're engaging in some sort of level of of intelligence analysis that must also take on that idea that you might have some biases, right? And that you should check what those biases are. Don't jump to conclusions about what this is, because you'll end up writing about and drawing conclusions that may be incorrect. Hmm. Right. If we had just kind of gone down this road and kept on looking for evidence of a huge, well-resourced, state-sponsored espionage campaign, we'd still be sitting there scratching our heads. Right. Because it's not what it was. Right. And so, you know, we were able to assess that with some high level of confidence at the end of the day, because, well, this threat actor made some operational security mistakes, (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And when you do that, sometimes those things can be critical. And so we had a combination of indicators at the end of the day that pointed towards this being a small group or maybe even an individual effort to target these companies for financial gain and not a multi-pronged, long-running, state-sponsored espionage campaign that's designed to siphon intellectual property or something like that out of the company. Right,
0: I suspect too that you have to have a certain amount of humility to to protect yourself against the not invented here problem. I mean you mentioned how you know yeah. you sort of had an aha moment when you came across this research from group i b and which yeah. connected some of the dots for you and i I could see internal groups having a bias against that just uh, you know in a natural way
1: right. well, this is part of the reason why we publish research like this yeah right? it's to it's to share what we're finding with other security researchers in the community, right? Right. So that they can maybe take the indicators of compromise that we had access to and that we developed and put them together with what they have and then try to fill in the picture a bit more, right? I mean, it's actually kind of a nice thing, I think. I don't know the researchers at Group IB who were responsible or the incident responders who were responsible for this particular attack, but you know we don't even speak the same language, and here we were able to essentially arrive at the same conclusion and add to each other's body of knowledge. Right? Mm-hmm. They helped us make a, make sense of the malware that we found. We found the malware and more of the infrastructure that they had a piece of. Right? Yeah. So those two things, I think, go to go together very nicely.
0: Yeah. Now, you mentioned earlier that you had some reason to believe that this was an individual or a small group. What led you to that conclusion?
1: Well, the first thing was that, you know, in doing a little bit of malware archaeology, we, we discovered that this threat actor had reused malware and infrastructure previously in criminal efforts to steal from users of a video game platform. Hmm. It's escaping me which one it is. Was Let it Steam, see. I think? was it- Oh, yeah, Steam. Yeah. yeah. And that a lot of the tool set that was used there. So so that's I, I think that was used to, again, to steal credentials of users so that you could take money in game, I think, mm-hmm. which then you could cash out presumably in some way. I'm not I'm not a big steam user. Sorry. Yeah. For all of those listeners who yeah. might be evidently there are ways in which you can. Make some money if you can take over a number of accounts. And that, so that's what had happened there. And so the tool set hadn't changed. And we thought to ourselves, you know, when we found that out, we said, wait a minute, this doesn't really sound like something <laughs> that a government hacking group would be involved in, right? And so there, there of course, there are people that do both things and wear, wear both hats. And that's certainly a possibility here too, right? But it was the first indicator to us that this was not a nation state group, right? That this is a criminal group and the work of of at least an individual or a small group of people whose track record we can uncover, right? And whose lineage in their malware use and infrastructure use we could trace. Silence does not feel that it is very helpful to network defenders and enterprises to go into great granularity about who's behind an attack Right. right. We, that, we can have a whole other discussion, Dave, about that. Yeah. Another, another time, if you like. Yeah. So we don't, we don't, we tend not to put details like that in here, but rest assured that those details exist such that, you know, th- this, uh, threat group made an, enough mistakes that we could have a pretty good idea of who they are, hmm. right? Where they live, what they're interested in, <laughs> Right. The yeah. country that they're in, probably all of those things, which was further evidence, right? So put that together with the video game attacking in the in the past, uh, these operational uh, security blunders, and then the third piece was again the context that we got by reading the Group IB report to see that this was likely a business email compromise type of attack designed to steal money. And if you put those three things together, then you go, okay, this is very likely not a nation state group, right? This is likely. Uh, a, a couple of guys who are trying to get rich. And I, I should add a couple of rather bold individuals, right? Our feeling is that this person or group is located either in Russia or in that neighborhood. And so to take on a Russian state-owned oil giant mm. and financial exchange, mm-hmm. and not just one or two, but but more than two dozen, I think it's closer to 30 of them. Yeah. For, for a for <laughs> For three years, it, where your opsec is not all that great, right. is it shows incredible hutzpah. Incredible, talk about, chutzpah.
0: yeah. Talk about poking the bear, literally, right?
1: That's kind of what we meant, <laughs> right? So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. it's exactly the kind of thing that, uh, again, when we came to that conclusion, we couldn't believe it. You know, we thought yeah. to ourselves, "Boy, this guy's." is probably going to end up in the gulag, right, somewhere in short order if folks in <laughs> among the target set in Russia are reading Threat Vector, which I hope they are, now, <laughs> but you don't know. <laughs> yeah. Now, do you have any sense? Are these folks still active? Are they still at it? I think so. The last bit of forensic evidence that we looked at is now a month or so old, right? I haven't gone back to check it. But typically, when campaigns run like this for some length of time, unchanged or largely unchanged, it's an indicator that it's working, right? And it's an indicator that if some of this activity has been uncovered, right, I think the Group IB report, well, obviously, it preceded our research, right? I don't don't remember exactly by how many months, but it didn't seem to have an effect because at the time that we were completing this research and writing this, this analysis up, the activity was still ongoing, despite the fact that Group IB had already published. You see what I mean? So, yeah, yeah. so Group IB exposed a piece of it, had had beautiful screenshots of it, and you know had written about it not on their own website or not through sort of you know the InfoSec community's normal channels of of disseminating this kind of thing, but in Forbes magazine of all places, right? Which presumably is going to get some wider readership uh, out of the InfoSec community, and it didn't deter this this group, right? This guy kept going, right? So uh, I suspect it's probably likely still the case, right? Yeah.
0: It's interesting in itself. All all those little details are fascinating on their own. That this was placed in a paid-for way in Forbes is it, it itself makes you think.
1: Yeah, well, they accept content right from right. from various corporations and companies all the time. That part of it is not unusual. But the fact that I, we didn't see the research published on the Group IB's website. Right was yeah. was a little strange, mm-hmm. and the fact that it read as like a narrative, right? I think they called their thing uh, "Attack of the Clones." <laughs> Believe huh. it or not, uh, was the <laughs> name of the article, and they did mention Rosneft in there, right? So we knew enough; they had enough technical detail in there for us to determine with certainty that we were talking about the same thing. But right. it wasn't the typical kind of. You know, threat research where there were indicators of compromise at the end of the report and, right? yeah, yeah. and there was there wasn't any kind of like deep dive analysis into how the malware worked and how you would decrypt different functions of it and what the stages of it were and all that kind of stuff, which is which is part of what we include here, right? We're yeah. we're blending analysis and technical discussion in this blog post. They just sort of kept it at the analysis level, right? And talked sort of anecdotally about their own clients. But yeah. Fascinating stuff, right? I mean, it's unusual and unlikely.
0: Yeah, lots of intrigue here.
1: Lots of pieces of this are unusual and unlikely, Mm -hmm. right? So that's why we decided that it would be probably interesting for others to read about. I think that the important takeaway for researchers and for those involved in network defense at the enterprise level is: don't always go with your first blush instinct, right? Don't always have that knee-jerk response and jump to conclusions. What what at first blush seems to be a clear indicator of nation state activity might just end up being a you know uh, a criminal attempt to steal money, right? And vice versa. And watch, I, I would say watch that space. I think that that blurring of that line between those two styles is is something we're going to see more of.
0: Our thanks to Kevin Lavelli for joining us. The research is titled, Poking the Bear, Three-Year Campaign Targets Russian Critical Infrastructure. We'll have a link in the show notes. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport.